Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys to the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. Fancy that. And so, I've had a number of conversations this week, giving a certain insight into things. We, Like I said, there's hundreds and hundreds of young people now uh, suffering from myocarditis and pericarditis that just began shortly... These are young, healthy people between the ages of 18 and 24 that just suddenly developed these heart problems after getting the COVID jab. Fancy that. Of course, that was predicted back in 2020 by uh, John Hopkins' study that said that this was a serious problem and uh, would likely, they said that they needed animal trials before they went ahead, but everybody went ahead anyway. And uh, the the problem really is that you have people in the medical field who just do what they're told. This, this is years of public school as part of this. You know, the bell rings and you go do this. And the bell rings and you go do that. And somebody says, oh, stand on one leg and get a vaccine shot that hasn't been tested before. Because we say it's safe. And they say, okay. The people who are getting away with telling you to do these things and you just do them blindly, even though there's all kinds of evidence that this is not a good idea, it's out there, it's available. Uh, millions of people have seen the evidence. But you have no communication in your society except through the men at CNN and NBC and these different stations and your friends and your little closed net group. And they don't really care about you. Oh, they say they care about you, but they don't really care about you, or they would be telling you, this is not a good idea. But you don't hear that, because like we said in the study this morning on Amos, that your your prophets and priests are, don't really have your interest at heart. They don't really love you. They, they, they're in love more with their position. And so this goes on. And this is... These are that these situations had to be serious enough to go into a hospital and have this checked. And so, how many people are not that serious yet? But the process has begun of myocarditis and pericarditis. But anyway, so that's in the news. I mentioned this morning on our study on Amos. Uh, another thing I, I noticed that was in the news is uh, during Black History Month. Uh, a documentary was canceled. It it was removed from, I think, Amazon and maybe even YouTube. I'm not sure. But uh, uh, it was removed. And the documentary is about the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In Black History Month, they don't want you to know about Clarence Thomas and what he has to say. Isn't that amazing? So it's not really Black History Month. <laughs> it's it's my History Month. They just they just picking and choosing what they want to say, and uh, they're shucking and jiving uh, the truth because they're not going to play it for you. And then the other thing is, I added a new article up as "Are You Saved?" Uh, all, saved already is actually what it is, and I actually have another. Article similar to that under saved, or at least a portion of an article. I will probably, if I get time, I will put them both side by side and try to formulate the best possible article and then allow them to go up like that. Because it's really, you know, Paul talks about testing yourself. Testing your salvation. See if your salvation is real. Because we know that many will think they're saved and they're not saved. Christ told us that. Peter told us that. Paul intimated it. So we should be checking ourselves to find out if our salvation is real and not just assume or pay some 
putting hand pastor to tell you that, oh, you're saved, don't worry about it. Uh, and convince you that you should believe a lie. Because you might not be saved and that will be a big disappointment. Whatever that means to be saved already. I also was asked to be on a... Uh, talk to at least uh, maybe on a radio broadcast with uh, one of the uh, advocates for uh, freedom in South Africa. And uh, that would be Nadine Battenhorst. And uh, concerning the Papuda Amendment Bill, which is what you would call the Equality Act. So they're doing the same thing over there, except for the fact that it may get a little bloody over there sooner. And uh, we should find out why. And what can we do about it? Well, of course, they're getting active, and those are legal counsels, and they're trying to figure out what to do. But the reality is all this is coming about... Because we have strayed from the formula. We have walked away from the righteousness of God. And we are not really seeking the righteousness of God. We are seeking the self-righteousness of our personal religion. Or our personal opinion. And you should be seeking the righteousness of God. Which does not change. And also came across, uh, came across a book uh, written by Neil Howe. And it was co-authored by William uh, William Strauss, I guess it was. And uh, it was describing a generational theory. Uh, it was written back in, you know, over 20 years ago, 1997. And it was called The Fourth Turning. And uh, it, what it is, is that they, he kind of... You know, he lays this out, and it's not perfect, it's not mathematics, it's just kind of showing you certain trends. And of course you can go back into ancient Greek history and they talked about the same thing. They saw these generational trends, counting generations is about 20 years or 25 years. But, uh, so in a period of, uh, in the, the these four turnings in a year period of history, block of history, every 20 years there's a generational change. And they say it starts with like a high where things are really good and everything's really great and everything's going along terrifically. And of course, after World War II, we kind of had one of those highs from about 1945 to 1963. And of course, that included the happy days, you know, the 50s and uh, and uh, two cars in every garage and a chicken in every pot and things were getting really good for a lot and lots of people and that continued for quite a while and uh, there were some people that did not you know in certain parts of America that was Jim Crow too so there was a stifling but the fact is people got together and they uh, joined hands and they took stands and things got better it was rough going but you know there's always a price to pay for liberty and freedom and people were willing to pay the price, and they got to pay the price. I mean, you go to some places, like you tried that in Soviet Russia back in the 30s, and you'd end up in the gulag, or dead, or both. So, it was actually a pretty good time, at least in America, and a lot of European countries were getting better. It took a little slower start in Europe because of the devastation of the war. But they went on from there and things got better and better and better. And uh, then there comes this second 20-year period, which supposedly get, began around 1965, which they call an awakening. It's often an awakening of passion. And that awakening of passion uh, included in the 60s, uh, you know, the beatnik generation turned into the hip generation and... Uh, also included a sexual revolution uh, of individualism and then they broke into communes and and moved steadily towards actually a new form of social interaction which was called selfishism. <laughs> because, I mean, you had this mix, but it, it's this awakening revolution and everybody doesn't awaken to the same thing or listen to the same voice and you know my sheep hear my voice but other sheep hear other voices 
And I I was growing up during this period, and I actually lived in San Francisco just before, you know, Haight-Ashbury, and then I went back and saw Haight-Ashbury as it was developing around 68, 69, and... Uh, Drugs were coming in, and there was a massive movement of people out of San Francisco because cartel, drug cartels were coming in, selling their drugs, and they wanted to go out in the woods and live deliberately. You know, they're pulling from so many different sources, from, uh, you know, the different uh, throws or... or uh, Guys like Super Spade was writing in articles and free presses and stuff like this, and they were talking about this influx of, of uh, not uh, capitalism but gangsterism, and people were actually getting their throats slit and everything else. So there were good and bad coming about, and there was this struggle, the pains of trying to figure out where to go. But really, probably one of the important things to note is this sexual revolution. And then he has this third stage, this unraveling, which is in the 80s, you know. And, of course, it had already begun back in the 60s, you know, where there, everything was good and everybody's building homes and there were subdivisions going up from one uh, city to another. And then they're writing songs, houses made of ticky-tacky, all lined up in a row, where people... Uh, are looking for meaning in life, which, of course, fueled this beatnik and then the hippie revolution trying to find... And it's young people trying to decipher what is true, what is valuable, what is going to make us better, what is gonna, life going to make better. And what it really is, is happening, at least in this case, was a disrespect of your parents and the previous generations. And the previous generations were a little bit drunk on all the success, and so they didn't realize what was going on. They weren't really imparting the values. And, of course, great many of the values that people had grown up with back in the uh, turn of the century in the 20s were eroded away by World War II, uh, to some degree even by World War One, And... Uh, but I would have to say one of the great influences was public education, which took the children out of the home and began to teach them other values. Now, at first, the public education were repeating the values of Americans. But that began to change. Actually, probably 1908, I saw changes taking place. They were minor. But during the war, you know, uh, from about 1914 on... There were big changes being made. New history books were being written. They didn't really change history so much, but they left stuff out. They left out frames of reference. And of course, that's what a lie is, is you leave out some of the information so you don't have the whole truth, and that, of course, is the definition of a lie. So there's all these different things going on, and eventually what it has been bringing about is this perfect storm. So, by 1985, you had this unraveling of moral values. You had communes turning into communism. Uh, you had these revolutionary ideas that were amongst the young people going to college. Now, those young people are becoming the professors, and the professors are beginning to teach other people. And then by 2008... You have a financial crisis where everybody is more concerned about that. The press is taking over. Nobody's telling you. The church has now moved the definition of religion from the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man to what you think about God. So de denominationalism has become king. You know, are you a Baptist? Are you a Methodist? Are you... Uh, a certain kind of Methodist, are you a Catholic, are you a Roman Catholic, are you a Carmelite Catholic, are you a Seventh-day Adventist, are you a Jehovah Witness. These are what is important because that defines your religion. When the denominator of religion was Christ and the purpose of religion was to care for one another, to learn to love your neighbor as yourself, whether he was a, a Protestant or a Catholic or Buddhist or 
a Jew, that shouldn't have mattered. The idea was to love your neighbor. Uh, it shouldn't matter whether he was a Samaritan or a Jew So to Christ, so it doesn't matter if he is a Jew or a Christian or whatever. You should be wanting to take care of the needy of that society. Well, something else was taking place if we go back there even before 1945 when other things were unraveling where uh, there was a downturning with the Great Depression and that downturning brought a crisis and that crisis brought in FDR. And FDR began to say that it was okay. As a matter of fact, it was a mandate to take care of the needy of society through funds that you force from other people, taxation or borrowing money against the future to provide for the needy of society. Now, we had had other depressions and we came out of them rather quickly, but the Great Depression, which wasn't necessarily all that much bigger than other depressions, we were very slow in coming out. And historians now agree that we were slowing coming out because of the interference of the program set up by FDR. And so, all this fits into this idea of the fourth, fourth turning uh, of society going up, society having this passionate great awakening, although that great awakening may, may not be an awakening to the truth, it's just they think they're awakening. Now, do we see anything like that now? Well, of course, wokeism and woke capitalism, they think they are waking up. But there there will soon be an unraveling and great disappointment and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, the archetype, if you look at it, the, the personalities of these systems are, are the prophets, uh, the first part, and then the builders, the changers, the movers, that's part of that awakening. Uh, and then the heroes, whether they be real heroes or fake heroes, that's another question. But those fake heroes will bring the unraveling. And of course we saw that if you go back to uh, communist Russia, there was an unraveling into communism. They unraveled the royal house. And of course the royal house was somewhat corrupt. But they probably didn't deserve the fate that they got. Uh, because the, he was actually bringing a lot of reform, but those heroes of the Communist Party were unraveling society, breaking it down, destroying it, so that they could build it up in an image that they wanted. So bringing about a crisis was very important in World War II was that crisis. So, like I said, this is not math, but this is the parts of these processes that take place. And men, you know, write books about it, and talk about it. And if you go back and study history, you can go back to uh, Polybius, who points out in Book 8 that uh, for how by bare reading of events can we hope to learn and understand either the magnitude of the occurrences of the things of greatest moment, what means and what form of government fortune has employed to accomplish the most surprising feat she has performed in our time. That is to bring all the known parts of the world under one rule and dominion, a thing absolutely without precedent. Well, of course, that's the goal again, and they're doing it, and it almost seems out of control that you can do nothing about it. You can't stop it. You have no control over it, and it is... It is you know, uh, they're going to do what they're going to do and you can't do anything about it. But the reality is you can do something about it and you can do something very dramatic about it, something uh, very impressive about it. The fact is you can do something about it, but you have to go back. You can't just go back one generation or go back 20 years or 40 years or 60 years or 80 years. You have to go back to... to Understand the actual fundamental processes of society. What makes man tick? What makes man tick is what makes society tick. Now, society does not exist in a vacuum. It exists within the laws of nature. Like I'm fond of saying, we live in a cause and effect universe. 
And so we need to understand that if we make certain choices somewhere along this road to go this way, to go that way, it's going to make, uh, it's going to alter the outcome. It's going to alter the path that we're on. It's going to alter the circumstances of our society and therefore alter the destiny of our society. You know, there, there's a movie, Mr. Destiny, and that he changes something in his destiny. If I only did this, I think it was catch a football or something, then everything would have been different. Well, yeah, everything would have been different, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to be better. It could mean that everything is going to be worse. Uh, just because you've removed certain hard times is not going to make things better. And uh, so what is... What is the deciding factor or the deciding characteristic that is going to make things better? And it isn't, it isn't that things, you know, like you graduated from college or you didn't have that automobile accident. I know somebody who had an automobile accident and I think he lost part of his leg and then, so he couldn't do what he wanted to do, so he became a chiropractor and he became very successful as a chiropractor. But he may not have, he was headed for a career in sports. I don't think he would have made it in the sports. That's a very competitive field and not everybody makes it. So he lost one opportunity, but another opportunity created or was created. So the question is, what are the fundamental things that supersede those things that are created in the, the more superficial Areas of our society and our reaction within society. And so what are those things and how do they function? How do they operate? How do they affect what we're doing and how we are doing it? And that is, that is the $64 million question or $64 billion question. And of course we, I've touched on it a little bit this morning and I talked to, to a great extent to other people about it this last week is that the Ten Commandments are guideposts. That's actually what the word means. And so those Ten Commandments are determining the outcome of your universe. How you apply those Ten Commandments, how you understand those Ten Commandments, how you incorporate or inculcate those Ten Commandments into your personal life and then how you relate to other people in the world in relationship to those Ten Commandments. Believe it or not. Now, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I obey the Ten Commandments, you know. No. This actually is bringing about a mystical alteration of your destiny by understanding and incorporating the Ten Commandments into your life. And, but most people don't understand it. And I've written a lot up about the Ten Commandments and how it works. But uh, the reality is this is going to set the precedent. It is going to set the path. It is going to set the ordination of your life when you put those Ten Commandments into place. The commandments, you know, we talk about the commandments. And, uh, of course, there's the... Ten Commandments, or like I say, the Ten Statements. And you you have these ideas that somehow there's some sort of law that that uh, you have to obey or you're going to end up in everlasting hellfire. And of course, when Jesus was asked about eternal life, he says, you know, it was people asking, how do you find eternal life? And he says, you know, the commandments keep them. Keeping the commandments is actually a journey. And like I say, the journey is the destination. Attempting to keep the commandments, understand the commandments, ask yourself the hard questions, why am I having trouble with this commandment or that commandment, is going to open a door to your own heart and mind. It also sets patterns of energy into the realm in which you live, into creation when you really understand the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, most people do not understand the Ten Commandments, and so they have all kinds of problems with, you know, trying to keep it so hard and everything, because 
for one thing, they aren't really repentant. They don't really want to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They think that it's a matter of some sort of statutory law that if I, if I do this and don't do that, then good things will happen. No, the commandments are guideposts to try to show you the way back to understanding yourself. And one of the first ones is, I am the Lord thy God. Now, what does that mean? The Lord thy God, I am the ruling judge of what is true, what is right, what is wrong. I am the source of knowing what is good and what is evil. If you try to figure it out for yourself, you're going to have problems. What you want to do is have a relationship with this divine uh, being, if you want to call it a being, uh, this, uh, what do they have, the, the unity, the, you know, this connection to the whole universe, because God is everywhere, God is in everything, God's, the pattern of God is in, built into creation itself, so you want to have a, a connection to this thing we call God. We don't want to bring God down to some sort of finite personality, but God is this, this creative force whose opinion has put the universe into motion. Whatever God is, his opinion of reality is reality. That's why there is a reality. Everybody wants to say that no, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. No. God's truth is the truth. There is some sort of real truth. Yes, I have an opinion of what that might be. You have an opinion of what that might be. But the very definition of God is that his opinion of the truth is the truth. It is what is. If it, if the entity's opinion of the truth is not the truth, then that ain't God. You know, so that's, to, so you're assuming that there is some sort of consciousness that we call God that actually knows and opinion is the truth. So I am the Lord thy God, this creative force existing within the universe that has brought everything about, which has also brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You were in bondage in Egypt. 20% of your labor belonged to the government. And so you had to work for the government 20% of the time. We always had this picture because of the movies of those that were in bondage were in bondage 365 days out of the year. No, they were in bondage 20% of the year. The rest of the year, was their labor was theirs. Now, through craft of state, that might have increased, but that's what that bondage was. That's how it was originally organized. Burdens may have become greater or less at different times, but that's the essence of it. Then it goes on to say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In other words, no one else is going to have the right to decide what is good and evil, but that God. If you give the power to somebody else, then suddenly their opinion has more weight than your opinion. They're going to suddenly say, Oh, it's not lawful to own, uh, you know, an AK-47 or, uh, you know, some weapon, you know... Um, you know, what do they call it? Uh, assault rifle. You can't own an assault rifle. You can't own a clip. That would be bad. So somebody's going to have the power to make that decision for you. You can't make that decision yourself. You know, like you want to contribute $10,000 taxes to the local fire department, but they say, no, we want 15000 so you're going to have to give that much. Somebody else gets to make the decision. Those are the gods of your society. Those are the ones who decide, no, that's not enough. You have to give more. And so, once you understand that gods are those people or entities or institutions that decide what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what you can do and what you can't do, what you have to do, then that becomes the god of your immediate society. They're going to tell you what is right and wrong. So, if we go down farther, we see in verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. Now, why are they saying that? They're talking about living creatures you're making a graven image of. Now, we think that means making a statue or anything. But why? what does that have to do with these gods? Because that's what they did, is that they would give somebody power to make decisions about the gold you have. And so they put it in the golden calf, and now somebody's going to have the decision-making powers over that goal, how it's distributed and, and shared in the community. And what they did, because they didn't have vaults and uh, all that stuff, is they they made a graven image and they, you know, of a calf or a statue of a man and uh, or whatever, and that became the depository of their wealth. And so that's really what graven images are all about. It also incorporates, if you look at the language, the Hebrew language, there's extra letters often in, when they're talking about these things. And it means that these graven images are the institutions that monitor this wealth that used to be in your pocket, but now is held by governments or men in authority. So... Uh, that pretty much covers that commandment. You're not to have these other gods uh, before your own God-given conscience. And I say God-given conscience because you still can't decide what is good and evil. You have to have this relationship where God will show you what is right and wrong. This is when God is walking with you. So, in... This second commandment, which maybe we can start talking about, and there's different ways to number this, but we're just going to go with this way. Exodus 25 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. So third and fourth generations, that would cover that turning. Four generations would cover that turning. So there there may be something to that principle that even was known to God way back when Exodus 25, 20 verse 5 was written. But what we're seeing is he's talking about bowing down and serving them. Well, how would you serve these gods that make these choices? Well, they, like I say, they would maybe decide that, well, 20% of your labor is not enough. They want 25% of your labor. Well, if you have to give them another 5% of your labor, that's another 5% of service. Because you're giving it to them. That's a service. So... Why do you have to give it to them? Because you have to bow down to them because you made some sort of, what? Covenant with them. Some sort of agreement uh, with them. Make, giving them more and more power. So, he tells us not to do that because, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. He says, and in verse 7 he goes on, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So how do you take his name in vain? Now they would have you think that that's like cussing and swearing and saying, you know, uh, GD damn it or some crazy thing like that. And uh, that would be taking his name in vain. But actually, taking his name in vain would be saying, yes, I believe in God, I'm obeying God, he is my Savior, he is my King, but I'm actually not going to serve him or do what he says to do. I'm going to do my own thing. So you're saying, Lord, Lord, but you're not doing what the Lord said to do. That would be taking his name in vain. Cussing and swearing would not be a good thing either, but that's not really what they're talking about. So in verse 8 we say, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Well, that is actually all a part of, you know, verses, well, actually to some it includes 
taking his name in vain, but it also includes the verses uh, 8, 9, 10, and even 11. And so what do they say? Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, and thou nor thy sons, nor thy daughters, thy manservants, nor thy maidservants, nor thy cattle, nor thy strangers that is within the gates. Now, again, the Bible is full of metaphors and they're trying to give you a meaning to this. They're not trying to create kind of ritualistic restrictions. People want to think they're ritualistic restrictions because if they are you don't have to think about it anymore you don't have to understand it you just i do this and that's it and then i'm saved automatically if i step on you know it's kind of like hopscotch if you step on the one and then the two and the three and then the four and then the five and the six and then you turn around on the seven and then you hop your way back then you win you know, that you go through this pattern. But no, no, you're supposed to be getting to the state where God is writing upon your heart and upon your mind. And so, he's saying that six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all uh, in them is and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now that again is just a uh, allegory and a metaphor trying to explain what he's talking about. So that idea is that you work first and then enjoy the fruit of your labor. You do not enjoy the fruit of your labor and then have to go and work and pay for it. In other words, the Sabbath is all about staying out of debt. If I if somebody did something for me, I am anxious to do something for them. To remove that debt. Because even though it's not, maybe they say, well, you don't owe me anything. Yeah, well, I feel like I owe you and I want to, you know, pay you back. I don't want to just let it go and, you know, take you for granted. So anyway, we get another commandment here. Exodus 20.12, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Well, this this it, this is a huge, it's actually rather short. I mean, there are others that say, Thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery. But this is, this is one of the first commandments that is pretty short, but is really very extensive because all these successful societies, if you go back in history and you look at all the successful societies, you know, uh, the people on Milos who developed plumbing and a very orderly society that lasted for many, 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 many years. Uh, what was the core elements of that society where they developed all this knowledge and understanding? Well, at one time it was the family. Often when they reached prominence, they're going through those turnings and the family may be broken, breaking down. And I've read an interesting study and I've mentioned it before that if you have... A sexual revolution, which is why I mentioned it at the beginning, the 60s sexual revolution. Usually you only have two generations and then society really starts unraveling. Why? Because sex is bad? No. Because the sexual revolution undermines the fabric of the family. And tyrants need the family torn apart. They need communities divided Divide the sheep and conquer. And of course, that's what's going on. They want to break down the family. They want to divide the community. You don't go to a school that is paid for by the sweat and blood of the community through choice. You do it to those men who exercise authority. You are not coming together to, you know, like we built a fire department in this community. Uh, you know, a, a free volunteer fire department. It's really done a lot to bring the community together. But if we did that also with schools and we did it with hospitals and we did it with health, we would have an invincible community. 
But we don't do that. Well, Christians are supposed to be doing it. It was part of the mandate of Christians to take care of one another, have a daily ministration. They don't do that anymore. 90% of the charity in the Christian community is provided by the state. So, back to honor thy father and thy mother. Well, that means to take care of. And you take care of them so that your days will be long upon the land. Because your children are going to see you taking care of your parents and they're going to take care of you. If you don't have that, your children will do nothing for you or very little for you and you will be fitting for yourself. Which is clear evidence that you're not a Christian. If that's the case, you're not a Christian. Because you're not, you're not even keeping the commandments. Those who love Christ keep His commandments. That's just built into the system. Honor thy father and thy mother, so you stay long upon the land, and then thou shalt not kill, which means you can't even kill somebody a little bit. You know, I don't want to kill him. Can I just stab him? Can I just hit him with his baseball bat a couple of times? No, that all falls under the same heading. And then, number six, thou commit adultery. Well, where does overeating come into this? Is there is there a sin about overeating and becoming obese? Wouldn't be overeating be a form of adultery? You're adulterating your body just the same as you were in adulterating your marriage. Yes, thou shalt not commit adultery means you will not not only not kill other people, you will not undermine or threaten yourself. And that means, of course, because you and your spouse are one, you will not threaten or violate your spouse. And so, that's very important to understand that that committing adultery has to do with adultering yourself, eating bad foods, eating the wrong kinds of foods, not taking care of yourself. That's a form of adultery. Exodus 20.15, Thou shalt not steal. Obviously, you're not supposed to take away from your neighbor because what he owns represents his sweat and blood. And just like you're not supposed to take his blood, you're not supposed to take his blood in the form of his stuff because his stuff represents his blood. There's this whole thing now in the woke culture. It's just stuff. Don't worry about it. Most of the stuff that they depend upon, they have forcefully forced out of the hands of their neighbor. Because they don't really love their neighbor and they're not really Christians. They're not even really Jews. So, so you've got those three things. Thou shalt not ki- kill other people. Thou shalt not commit adultery around other people. And thou shalt not steal from other people. All those things are pretty close to each other. And if you're doing any one of those three, then you don't love your neighbor. And, of course, that's why all the law hinges on those two things. One of them is that you love your neighbor as yourself. So, in Exodus 20.16, we see, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, that would be another thing that would show you don't really love your neighbor as yourself. And then the last is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's goods, or anything that is thy neighbor's. So, those commandments are all about strengthening the family. You, if you're coveting your neighbor's goods and coveting your neighbor's house, you are threatening his family. If you're bearing false witness to your neighbor, then you're threatening his family. If you're stealing from your neighbor, you're threatening his family. And, of course, that's what they don't want you to do, is to... Threaten your neighbor's family, or threaten your neighbor, but they want you to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. When you actually do that, when you're not slothful in that caring, you actually start protecting that relationship in your local community. And God will send his minions to protect you. And so, that's how how it works. And the more people you have that are sacrificing themselves on a daily basis to do that, the the closer and closer you are to this character of 
God, the character of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But you have to do it in earnest. You have to really seek that righteousness of God and then your eyes will be open and you will see things that you didn't see before and you will learn things that you didn't know before because you will have new eyes to see and new ears to hear. So anyway, we went through those Ten Commandments, but how does that break down if you're breaking down the family? In the sexual revolution, of course, you there was a lot of fornication going on in that. If you're fornicating, since God is not subject to time, you're actually, to some degree, you're cheating on your spouse. Uh, even though you don't know your spouse yet. And uh, that is undermining what it's going to take to stay with your spouse. You're more likely, if you if you play the field, you're more likely to get a divorce later on when you get married. Because you don't hold this union of husband and wife as sacred. And... You know, it it becomes something that, you know, you can break the rules before and you can break the rules after. And that it just sets a bad precedent. When the family begins to break down, like we see in the black community, now that, that had a number of causes. Of course, promiscuity is certainly one of them. But it's kind of like left hand, right hand. The pr- promiscuity endangered the families to come. It it undermined the families not yet formed. It undermined the children who were going to be adults someday. And so, staying true to your wife, staying true to your husband, staying true to your family is sometimes hard, but what does it require? How, what What are we short of in order to do that. What stress will be put upon us when we come to those conflicts and we don't want to get a divorce? Well, one of those conflicts is you're going to have to learn to forgive. You're going to certainly have to learn to give, but you're also going to have to learn to forgive. And if you don't learn to forgive, staying married will be very hard. You have to forgive yourself. You know, people talk about being uh, bipolar. Bipolar is really, the curable event of bipolar is to forgive himself. If you will not forgive yourself, you, you, will, you will tend towards bipolarism. But you also have to forgive others. It's an absolutely essential part uh, and you have to desire to forgive others. You have to desire to let go of those traumas in order to set yourself free. So, the family, the Ten Commandments, the caring about one another, these are all essential aspects of strengthening society. If you take any one of those factors out of strengthening society then it becomes more and more dangerous for you and more and more likely to uh, suffer the changes that will come about not only in you but in society itself. If you if you keep those commandments, especially out of love, not some sort of you know police tactic, but out of love for one another, that will bring a paradigm into the community that will strengthen the whole of community. So anyway, you can go to uh, hisholychurch.org and uh, we already have recordings up on the Ten Commandments. Not only do you have to keep the commandments, the other people in your community have to keep the commandments. So this is one of the reasons why I tell people I'm not going to marry people with an ecclesiastical union of holy matrimony Unless they have a congregation. And I've said this before, but I just never laid the law down uh, for me. Is that this the, these communications of the needy of your society 
with one another is so essential that you have to care about the, your neighbor's marriage being successful as you care about your own. And your neighbor has to care about yours as much. Well, if you're not even in communion with one another, and I say communion because that's what... Communion isn't you going up to the front of the church and getting away from your tongue. A communion is what Justin the Martyr said communion was. It's people getting together once a week and those that have share with those that do not have enough. And sometimes people do not have enough stamina to stay married. So you can help them do so. It's an essential part of success of the whole community that you help people stay successful marriages. You know, the the Teutons, like I said, when somebody cheated on a Teuton, the deal was you got the hold of the guy, you tied him up, and you threw him in a bog. So there were other guys walking around trying to understand how important that is. You have to care about your neighbor as much, your neighbor's marriage as much, as your own, your neighbor's children as much as your own, your neighbor's business because his blood and sweat are tied up in his business as much as you care about your own. Your neighbor's understanding. So many people I know, oh, well, I did, yeah, he's wrong about that, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to create a commotion. If you care about the truth, speak up. If you care about the right to choose, Make sure that your neighbor gets his right to choose. These are just essential um, parts of the ingredients of a free society. And as you break down any one of those elements, you will start to erode away the family, erode away society, and eventually the society will become so weak and and corrupt that it will collapse like a bridge and everybody on the bridge will go down with it. So you want to prevent that. You want to avoid that. You want to uh, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't forget about the Burning Bush Festival. Uh, let other people know about it. Uh, until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.